The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. T-shirt sighting, your resolve must overcome your excuses. Okay, so I needed to see that today. If you need to needed to hear it, I'm happy to be able to share. And of course, I'm very, very happy that you're joining us on the Main Street Vegan Program. Very honored to be nominated for a 2017 Veggie Award by Veg News Magazine. If you want to vote for us, please just Google 2017 Veggie Awards. And there are all kinds of categories. And one is podcast. And gosh, I'd be really grateful for your vote. They have all kinds of prizes for voting. It's very cool. So we have another one of these shows where the projects of the two guests just seem to dovetail so beautifully. After the break, we will be talking with Eric Lindstrom, author of The Skeptical Vegan. But right now, it is my honor to introduce you to Jasmine Leva, filmmaker, along with her fiancé, Kenny Leva, of a very important documentary, The Invisible Vegan. Now, the way that I discovered Jasmine was that she's one of the vegans featured on Vegan Smythe's wonderful YouTube video with his fabulous anthem, I am vegan, hear me roar. Now, what's interesting about that is there are all sorts of people on there that I don't know. It's international. There are people from Australia, people from all over. And I said to myself watching it, well, you need to contact all these people you don't know. Well, with life being what it is, I have only contacted one, and that is Jasmine. 
there was something about her energy, something about her, her picture that I just knew, I don't know, there was some sort of spirit connection. And when I contacted her and said, what are you up to? She said, well, we're just finishing this documentary. And I'm like, okay, thank you, spirit. This is meant to be. So Jasmine and Kenny, as I said, have a feature-length documentary, The Invisible Vegan, that chronicles Jasmine's personal experience with plant-based eating. The film also explains how plant-based eating is directly linked to African roots and how African-American eating habits have been debased by a chain of oppression stemming from slavery, economics, and modern agribusiness. Welcome, Jasmine Leva. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such an honor. I am so happy you've done this film. You know, I saw a film, ooh, maybe three years ago that looked at at soul foods and some of these traditional foods that people think about strictly from a health point of view. And I kept waiting for something to come up about the animal content, and it never did. It was a little bit like the film that Katie Couric did um, that really focused on sugar. And we all know sugar is not good for you. But but just there was this glaring uh, deletion, you know, glaring emptiness around the animal foods. So I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing. Tell us how this all came about. Well, um, I've been flirting with veganism for about a, a decade, a little over a decade. And then when I would go home, I'm in Los Angeles now. In L.A., they kind of get it. But I would go back home. <laughs> DC and a lot of my friends, I would tell them I'm vegan and why, and they it there just wasn't a connect. So you know, I started looking at a lot of like the vegan documentaries and reading vegan books, and I was like, I know why there's not a connect because a lot of the information um, being put out by the mainstream vegan movement is not really catered to African Americans. You know, our, our culture is very nuanced. So sometimes in order to be able to relate to a different culture, you have to have cultural understanding. And in the documentaries I've seen, like, you know, there was one where it's like, you know, you have all middle aged white male experts spitting out statistics and then you don't introduce people of color in the narrative until the hour mark. And it's just like, oh, look at this poor family who can only afford to feed their family Burger King. And it's like, you know what? That right there is why a lot of African-Americans can't relate to it. They don't see themselves in the work. They don't, you know, they feel like this story doesn't relate to them. So that's why I created the invisible vegan to show them like, Hey, 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 look, this is, this relates to us too. And even about our history, you know, we, we've been taught that slave culture is African culture and black culture. And it's not, it's just a fraction, you know, like soul food. That's something we did while we were in bondage. We made the best out of what we had. But before then, you know, we were in Africa eating all types of foods, meat too, but primarily plant-based foods, cassava, you know, yams, bananas. So plant-based eating is a part of our heritage. So that's the the connect that I wanted to make with this film. Well, that's a beautiful connect. I don't know if you've heard um, um, the doctor in Texas who wrote Proteinaholic, Dr. Garth Davis, talks about a patient in his bariatric practice who came to him and said, oh, you know, I, I want surgery. I need to lose a lot of weight because I eat all these carbs. And as he spoke to her a while, he learned that she was from Ghana. And he said, well, were you heavy in Ghana? And she said, no. And he said, well, what did you eat there? And he said, you know, she told him all kinds of vegetables and starches. And he said, well, that sounds like a lot of carbs. 
And and it was like a light coming on that so many traditional cultures really are much more plant based, and somehow we've we've lost that across the board. Hmm? So your vegan journey coincided with making a film. Yeah, yeah, and I went. I mean, I went to school for film and television, and then I was working on a documentary series called Unsung. I've always found food to be fascinating, so this kind of like combines everything I love. Like I love film. I love food. And then I just wanted people around me. You know, I wanted to make sure they were getting this really, really important message of health and not force it on them. You know, I I think that everyone, you know, you make your own choice. If you want to go plant based, if you don't, that's your choice. But I just want to make sure that they have the knowledge so they can make their choices out of a place of, um, you know, information instead of out of a place of ignorance. Absolutely. And I love what you said about how nuanced African-American culture is, because I'm more aware all the time as a white person that I am looking in from the outside. It's just as if I went to some other country. I could read books and try to understand. But as you say, to really get an understanding of a culture, the art, the creativity, the, the films you need to come from that culture. So it's clear and direct. So a question that I have is a little bit about the history of veganism in this country. When I got into it a really long time ago, back in the 1970s, I had two mentors. Jay Dinshaw, the co-founder of the American Vegan Society, was white. And Dick Gregory, an activist, comedian, amazing person, was black. And through Mr. Gregory, I was introduced to his doctor, Alvinia Fulton, and I was living in Chicago, and the only vegan restaurant was run by the Black Hebrews. And it seemed to me at that time that, I don't know, it seemed like half the vegans at least were African-American. And I don't know if that was just a misconception or if it's as we've grown with with the Internet and and, and lots of millennials going vegan and stuff, you know, maybe the African-American numbers have not kept up. Do you have any sense of that? Well, I think, I mean, I can't speak to the history of it, but a lot of people, you know, if you were in a space where you were like checking for veganism, it's almost like, you know, in the universe, things come to you when, when you put it out in the universe. A lot of people in these communities, like low income neighborhoods, All we see, you know, all we saw was, you know, junk, junk food, um, you know, the produce section where the produce isn't that fresh McDonald's, Burger King's carryouts. So it's like we we didn't know any better. Like, that's all we were looking for in our community. Whereas if you grew up in like a more affluent neighborhood, I mean, they eat junk, too. But, you know, when when I went to school, I remember in my neighborhood, I saw all fast food. When I went to school in the good neighborhood, the first thing I see when I get off um, the escalator is a Whole Foods. So if you just have those like just small signifiers in your communities, you just look for different things. You just attract different things. And And when you think about like even what they put in the media they don't put, you know, like there was this movie like Soul Food. It was a popular um, movie in black cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, they show like, yeah, look at Big Mama making her soul food. You see that image all the time. You don't see Dr. Alvinia Fulton. You know, that's more like if you're checking for that. And I people see. in our community don't always know to check for that. Got it. So tell us a little bit about this this thing that you wrote that the the eating habits have been debased by a chain of oppression stemming from slavery, economics, and modern agribusiness. Totally fascinating. 
fill in some details. Well, you know, like I was saying earlier, in our country, you know, like when people think of racism, they think of like, you know, people hanging from trees. They think of like um, people being hosed down. And that is not I mean, that's a fraction of racism. Now, racism is more psychological. It's internal. Racism is when you take a group of people and you try to make them look like they're just they're low. Like they're always the bottom of the barrel. Even when I see a lot of movies put out, it's um it's getting better now. But before, whenever you see movies about white history, I'm seeing like Henry VIII and Elizabeth and Marie Antoinette. I'm seeing all these royals. And then when I see movies about black history, it's all like people in chains, slaves, you know, bodies being beaten and, and, and dragged. And, you know, and these images have like psychological effects. Like you learn like, Oh, white, pretty, royal, black, dirty, dingy, ugly. And then the same thing plays out with food. It's like when when they want to highlight our food culture, it's like black people, fried chicken, scraps. And then, you know, white people, salads and, and baked chicken and healthy foods. So it's like breaking, you know, with this film, I want to break or undo what years of seeing those type of images and seeing that type of hierarchy has done to us. Like I want to do the, the psychological inferiority complex that a lot of us suffer from. And and we don't even, and a lot of people don't even know it. Um, I remember the first time, like random, the first time I was with a white guy, I almost thought like, Oh my God, you like me, you know? And, and I didn't realize at the time, like that's because of all the images so now, you know, with this with this food project that I'm doing, I want I want to break those chains of like psychological oppression that we suffer from and show like, listen, no, we eat the best foods. We the same way there, you know, are white people, you know, going to Whole Foods and eating vegan. There are a lot of black people that do the same thing. And I want to give, you know, children in my community examples that they relate to because the examples that I would have related to is like an inner city child, you know, some like shoddy with her cornrows and, you know, maybe FUBU t-shirt at the time eating her, you know, vegan food. I would identify with that. But, you know, the mainstream vegan movement, that might not have been universal enough or American enough or commercial enough. So I want to show like, look, veganism has many faces and and should and everyone should be represented. I love that. Oh, when when uh, Christopher Sebastian McJetters does his wonderful intersectionality presentation, he's when we can get him because he lives in Prague um, for, for Main Street Vegan Academy that I do here in New York. It's always such a special, special thing. And every presentation starts with this image of I don't think he calls her yoga girl, but that's how I see her. She's about 20 and she's blonde and she's in her Lululemon. And he says, that's what you see when you think of vegan, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And that, you know, when you don't look like that, it's uh, something else. Wow. Yeah. So I know that you have uh, lots of, of amazing people in the documentary, one being Dr. Milton Mills, whom I'm absolutely crazy about. And he has gone so far as to say that some of the nutritional recommendations are actually institutionalized racism. This recommendation of dairy milk, which most people of color are not able to digest. Do you get into that? Yes, I do. Um, Yes. And because, again, you know, like when people want to live, you know, I hear the word like post-racial a lot. And 
when you go post-racial, what that means in America is kind of make everything white, (laughs) almost. Like, that's what I take from that. Because if you don't mention race, when you have messages that go out to say, like, oh, everyone drink milk, a lot of white people can digest milk. 70% of African Americans can't. So if you don't bring race into the equation, it's like, oh, the white people get in this message. They're going to drink their milk. They're going to be fine, even though no one should um, drink milk, ideally. But a lot of the black people, it'll make us really sick. We come from a different region. Our bodies aren't adapted to you know, eating that way. So if no one takes the time to cater messages to us, then we literally end up dying. And that's a problem when that's supported by the government and that's supported by major industries in this company. And no one's stepping up and saying, like, hold on, no, 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 no. For this particular group, you guys will get extra sick, you know? This is all so important. I'm so excited. Your film is going to save lives and do incredible things. And we all, uh, listeners and hosts, can help you do this. How do we do it? Well, now the film is complete. We did a rough draft of the film. We have a lot of footage and photos that we do not own the rights to. And we have to pay licensing fees for it. So now we're at the tab section. The tab is kind of pricey. So if you go to www.theinvisiblebeacon, we have an Indiegogo campaign where you can donate so we can get this film out to the masses. Well, that is absolutely thrilling. I will be doing that this afternoon. Thank you so very much for, for providing that opportunity. And then when you're out on the road and at the festivals and showing everywhere, I just really hope to meet you in person and of course, of be able course. to say brava. Thank you. So Thank you. one final last word. Until we can see the film, what do you want us to know? I just want, I just want people to look at their choices. Just really, you know, whatever you eat, um, especially for mothers too, because I see in a lot of mothers, they, they don't allow their kids to eat off the floor because you don't know what germs come off, you know, come off of the floor. Do the same thing when you're feeding your children things out of a box and look at these chemicals and, and really take into consideration you are setting your child up for habits that will either let them live a long life to 100 or cut them short 50 at 50 because they have diabetes or cancer or, you know, some other disease that might have been prevented. So just just examine your choices. Oh, Education. That is perfect. And I had never heard the don't eat off the floor analogy. But when you mm-hmm. think about the floor and then you think about a place like a slaughterhouse where I've actually been, no comparison. I would just set my kid right on the floor and say, eat all those vegetables off the floor. Exactly. <laughs> what I eat by comparison. Jasmine, bless your heart and blessings on your project. Let us stay connected. And I will put all the information about the Indiegogo campaign, the invisiblevegan.com. Um, you can find all that over at MainStreetVegan.net on our show notes. Thank you so much, Jasmine and everybody else. Stay with us. We're going to be talking with the skeptical vegan. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. 
you can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio, the teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Right here on Unity FM. The voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. I would like to invite you to check out the blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net. It is written by one of our wonderful graduates, Parisa, who has the most beautiful last name that I couldn't possibly pronounce, so you can see it when you go to the blog, Parisa is a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, and her post is about traditional Chinese medicine and nutrition and vegans. Because, you know, really often a vegan will go to an acupuncturist and be told that they need to eat meat, which is very upsetting oftentimes. And Parisa has an entirely different view of that, a vegan view, so you may want to check that out. I hope you will. 
And you know that for the past several weeks, we have had a sponsor, and they are HealthIQ.com. Now, you've probably heard of them for their fun educational quizzes that test your knowledge of healthy living, but they're doing something else as well, and that is that they have teamed with many of the country's top life insurance companies to offer savings on life insurance. Now, that's the kind of insurance that protects your family if you're no longer here, guess who gets the savings? I just love getting to say this. Vegans. Us. It's because statistically, we tend to be healthier and even live a little bit longer. And that is actually now worth some money. Cool, isn't it? So check out how much you'll save with no charge and no obligation by going to healthiq.com slash Main Street, healthiq.com slash Main Street. And we'll put that on the Main Street Vegan show notes as well. Oh my gosh, this is going to be a fun introduction because the book that we're talking about, The Skeptical Vegan, is so much fun. When I was reading a pre-publication copy I think I made dozens of enemies on the New York City subway system because I would laugh out loud and uproariously. And you know, when somebody is wanting to be glum, they don't want to see somebody else laughing out loud and having a fabulous time. But I certainly did reading The Skeptical Vegan, and I loved it so much that I actually got to write the foreword. My guest is the author of the number one Amazon bestseller, The Skeptical Vegan, still brand new. Well, Eric went vegan overnight. This single lifestyle change ultimately led to a popular food blog, a successful design and marketing firm, and eventually The Skeptical Vegan. His second book is uh, in the works. It'll be out next year, Mind Your P's and Cukes, <laughs> A Guide to Raising Vegan Kids. Today, Eric is the Program and Marketing Director for Farm Animal Rights Movement and manages the Online Views and Vegan Support Program. He lives in Ithaca, New York, with his vegan wife, two vegan toddlers, and a vegan dog named Kimchi. Welcome, Eric Lindstrom. Well, thank you, Victoria, for having me on your show. It's a huge honor. Well, I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. If you are anything like as entertaining when you speak <laughs> as you are when you write, this is going to be an absolute classic. That's a lot of, lot of pressure. I'll yeah, try. Yeah, okay. Well, you're, you're, you're funny. I know that. So I know that you tell the story in your book. So I know how you got to be vegan. But for people who have not read the number one new release on Amazon – How'd you get to be vegan? Well, again, I was the most unlikely candidate ever to go vegan. And I think that's what makes this book singular uh, in the vegan movement. Uh, I do talk a lot about eating meat. I talk a lot about my past ways of being an omnivore with heavy carnivore leanings. And so the likelihood of me going vegan was very low. Um, My wife, uh, Jen, at the time girlfriend, was vegetarian and um, decided to go vegan because she was having uh, issues with dairy and thought she could cut out dairy, which would put her pretty much in the vegan category. So she was prompted to check out uh, Colleen Patrick Goudreau's book, The 30-Day Vegan Challenge, 
And I decided, what the heck, I'll try it just for 30 days. I'll survive 30 days without meat, dairy, or eggs, assuming it would just be 30 days. Uh, now, nearly seven <laughs> years later, um, I'm still vegan because the 30 days became a bet, and it's a bet that I still refuse to lose. So <laughs> it's true, actually. Um, but during that time, as you know, Victoria, you start to make um, – not only strides in your own health, you start feeling better. You start feeling lighter, literally and figuratively. Uh, you start getting better doctor's visits and you start making the connection. And so, you know, as within the first sort of six months to one year of now, you know, at that point being vegan, not believing that I could ever be vegan for more than a month, um, I started to realize how incredible I could feel, um, both from a health perspective, but just from a from an outlook on life. Um, and so uh, ultimately, I mean, obviously I ended up embracing it and yeah, it all started with a bet and um, it's a bet that I'll, I'll carry to the grave, which by the way, as you just mentioned, is going to be a lot further along than it would have been before. Yes. Well, your book is so different because it's really cross genre. I suppose it's a memoir primarily but it's also extremely informative. If somebody was just looking for a first book to read for going vegan, this would really be one of the ones on the top of my list. But it's also a humor book. And I think when a lot of people approach veganism, it's with incredible seriousness and, and, and sadness and, and sometimes horror, you know, either because the doctor has said make changes or the Grim Reaper is going to show up at your door or because we've seen these really horrific things that, that happen to animals, or, or we watch Cowspiracy and we think about the climate. Somehow you are able to honor all that mm -hmm. and still write the funniest book I have read in probably 20 years. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a compliment. And I do have to uh, remind you, Victoria, that in the first emails from my publisher, Main Street Vegan was brought up um, as sort of here's what we're looking for. Can you combine Main Street Vegan with Thug Kitchen? Can you make, <laughs> can you make a meaty vegan version of Main Street Vegan? Because I actually read your book. I was already vegan for, a, I think, a month, a little bit more than a month. And so I read it with this kind of idea of, well, I'm already in it, but your advice and your guidance and the way that you even structured your book was just so incredibly um, informative and easy to read. And so a lot of that was the inspiration behind the skeptical vegan, making something that people can enjoy and learn from. And then ultimately, my sort of snarkiness, sense of humor, uh, satire is threaded throughout the book. And that's where I think, again, as the editor was reading it at the publishing company, they would say, why is this chapter here? Or what do you mean by this? And I was like, well, you're thinking a little too hard. It's meant to be you know, again, as you say, a, a different perspective on all of this, that can we look at it from a from a more humorous angle? Can we get people to laugh about this, laugh about themselves? There's a lot of self-deprecation in it. There's a lot of vegans, I'm sure, who, you know, won't actually appreciate some of the things I say about being vegan. Again, meant to be tongue in cheek. But I do think that, uh, as you said, tying together humor with such a serious subject. I mean, that's what your forward says, too. The forward in the book says it all. Uh, those are, I think, the three best pages in the book. Um, you know, it's it's how how do you do that? How do you create something that is cross-genre, but also cross-gender? Cross uh, I mean, different people will enjoy it across all um, 
all lifestyles. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very proud of that aspect of it. Well, that's the thing. I think it's an excellent book for a meat eater. Certainly someone who is in a relationship with an omnivore who is not wanting to make changes or not wanting to make a lot of changes. Uh, that is someone who, who's a parent and, and your child has gone vegan and you're just like, what? What just happened? Uh, your book is so great because you really come at it. It's, it's sort of like when I write about um, food and, and weight issues, like in my book, The Love Powered Diet, I write as a compulsive overeater. Because even though my last binge was almost 34 years ago, that's, that's how I'm made. That's what my DNA is made of. And you write this book as a carnivore-leaning omnivore who, through <laughs> your own enlightenment, I would say, has, has opted to be vegan. But certainly you can relate so much to the people who are still there saying, don't tell me, yeah. you know, no, yeah. no more Beef Wellington, oh my God. <laughs> chicken wings. My big weakness was chicken oh. wings. You know, I remember as I was sort of midway through the manuscript, and again, you being an author knows what that feels like. You're halfway there. You're halfway to your word count. Um, it's an incredible amount of work, but I can remember being half done with it when I suddenly realized how often I was hearing people talk about their partners, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, wives or husbands who aren't vegan. Our household is split. What do we do? How do we cope with this? What do I cook? Um, and that was a lot of what inspired me to keep going and to make this book what it is, is that I want it to be purchased by the vegan in the household to give to the non-vegan or vice versa, that this is an opportunity for everyone to understand that anyone can go vegan at any point in their life for whatever reason they choose. And they could do it overnight like I did, or they can take their time. Now, well, this is my next question. Uh, I get the sense that you didn't do this at 17. Is yep. it ever too late to go vegan? <laughs> it obviously isn't. And in fact, I tell people, I said a lot of this at the conference, too, as some of my, you know, you and I got to see each other at the animal rights conference recently. I would say that I'm half, my life is half over. I just turned 50 and I plan to live to be 100. So I'm half expired, no matter how I look at it. The expiration date is 50 years from now. And having gone vegan in my 40s, I really felt was an opportunity to grasp um, the, the second half of my life. I spent the first half of my life trying to kill myself. I'm going to spend the second half of my life making up for that. And so uh, part of that are these health visits, uh, weight. I mean, in terms of how much you weigh, but more so for me, the notches on my belt, wanting to feel better. I have two little kids now. I mean, they're, they're four and a half and two and a half. I'm running around at my age. I don't think I could be doing a lot of this, uh, eating the way I used to eat, uh, which again is well documented in the book. There's some pretty, uh, scary chapters about a lot of the animals that I've eaten over the years. And, um, I think that this was my chance to really look at that second half of my life, uh, through a, a much more focused and, uh, a positive light. Well, I think it is very interesting that you write this from the point of view of someone who was a heavy meat eater. And I would have to say that I was, too. I mean, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, yeah. known for steak and barbecue. I mean, it was really it was a sign of pride, you know, a Kansas City steak, not one of those New York strips, but a Kansas City <laughs> right. steak. Not a skinny and, little steak. <laughs> yeah. And, and to go you know, from from that to vegan, it is a distance. And yet I think it's just like what 
I was talking about with with uh, Jasmine, our previous guest. When something is just wrong, you've got to make changes. You know, when, yeah. once you you get that, that's how it is. Yeah. So I know that you've had your share of eating across the vegan spectrum. Um, lots of all the wonderful um, foods that seem somewhat like animal foods, and then lots of plants. Mm-hmm. So where are you now, and what do you recommend? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So someone on Instagram recently, um, I think their username is something like Better Eating Vegans or something. I, I'd have to look into it. But this woman complimented me on my beautiful photography and had to say, because she's also bought the book and she's reading it, had to say, where are the vegetables? You have to show more vegetables, right? And it's more like a, a, a really, um, you know, approachable way of saying, you know, everything you're shooting is brown. All of my food is brown food. And so, you know, I, I, I make jokes about, you know, here's a photograph of my Beyond Burger with my Follow Your Heart cheese and my Char bun, and it's beautiful. And then on the left-hand side of the photo is some kale because someone's going to ask, <laughs> you know, where's the green? And so it's there kind of as a garnish. But I say that, um, you know, half-jokingly, that I love vegetables and I love fruit, and we're making sure our kids are well-nourished with all of the the rainbow of colors that you can eat. But I have to be honest, um, I'm still addicted to French fries. I still love those sort of like fried and hearty foods. Like you say, the the uh, the meat substitutes, you know, to make a, a chicken Parmesan sandwich with a garden chicken filet. It's I love it. I love being able to eat everything I used to eat. And I think, again, that's a big point in the book is that you really give up nothing and you gain everything by going vegan. That's the bottom line for me. And so. I do feel, you know, soon, I'll, I'll keep saying soon, I'll get a better sort of handle on, on eating more healthily. But right now I'm having fun eating the, the pizzas and the burgers and the, the wings made out of tofu or whatever um, that really just are totally satisfying, the comfort foods. But um, you've, still, you've had health benefits anyway. Yeah, I know. I know. Actually, um, I was telling someone that one of the contributors to my next book is Dr. Neil Bernard. And I'll never, ever forget for the rest of my life the email that he wrote back to me with some of the questions uh, about the book, about his segments of the book, were that, you know, he said he went on the record to say a, a vegan diet is healthier than an omnivorous diet. Just put that out there. Just know that you're eating healthier no matter what. Of course, there's like, you know, limits there as well. You can't just eat potato chips. Um, but he is saying that that if you if you balance out what you're eating, watch what you're eating you know, have your plate majority vegetables and that other half could be whatever you want it to be and have it be vegan, you're still eating a healthier diet than you were as a full-on omnivore. That's great news. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about being vegan in 2017. Oh my gosh, I and, know. and that is you really can have anything you want and you can choose not to or to just have it every now and then. You know, the choice yeah. is yours, but it hasn't been made for you. I mean, when I went vegan, the choice was made for you. If it wasn't potato chips or, uh, let's see, there was something called a Goldenberg's peanut chew that was (laughs) a a vegan chocolate peanut bar that you could only get on the East Coast. 
Oh and so gosh. when I was living in Kansas City, you know, I'd have to come to New York and like buy these up and stuff them in the pockets of my, <laughs> you know, they were vegan. Yeah, and 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 but what's interesting now that you know all this stuff is available, I'm really attracted to the colors. In fact, it was interesting that you talked oh. about the brown food because I feel like my first years as a vegan and even as trying to be a vegan before I made it. It was just like fields of brown. And all of a sudden, the color entered in and, and really made a difference. Yeah, you can. I mean, again, I, there's the, the recipes, which, by the way, the, there's 25 plus recipes in the back of the skeptical vegan. They are meant to be the meatiest of my recipes, the chilies and the, the burgers and the wings and the, the rice paper bacon, which I just did a video for yesterday. Yeah. Those are things that, again, are fun to make and fun to eat. But I'm hoping that people look at that and say, okay, that's a side of the plate. And then you throw a bunch of just fresh cut vegetables in some water in a frying pan and just stir them up with a little bit of sesame oil or whatever you want to give them a little bit of flavor. Because, as you said, those colors, you end up tasting them more when you're Mm -hmm. vegan. You end up tasting I mean, just flavors explode all of a sudden that never used to. These things that, again, used to be garnish can now be a, a main player on your plate. And they're just so delicious and they're so fun to cook with. And and that was not it took me a while to get there. I was really struggling early on to to take my you know Italian heritage and turn it into, you know, a vegan kitchen. It was not it was not fun, but uh, it's totally been worth the extra effort and I, mm-hmm. I love it more now than ever before well, it seems to me that a very satisfying way to eat is is all the greens and the fruits and, and the light stuff but you've got to have something heavy to ground it all i mean i had dr yeah. mcdougall on a few months ago and asked him why he thinks there's so much recidivism and he was saying people don't eat enough they, 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 he said, some people eat junk food, like really, you know, junk candy and things like that. He said, but that's really not very many. You get more people who just want to eat kale and they yeah. get hungry yeah, and yeah. Then they go back. And so I think, you know, you have the kale and then you have the, the burger or the beans or the chili. And At the, yeah. At the same time, my wife makes a kale salad that's um, some sort of peanut lime dressing. I don't even know Ooh. how she makes it, but it's the best tasting food you'll ever have and you could eat an entire bowl of it and it's just as satisfying it tastes almost too rich it tastes like you shouldn't be eating this but boy it's good now that you've told us that you're gonna have to put the recipe in the next book good point actually no i'll put it up online you're right oh good well let me ask you about the next book while we're here this is really important mind your peas and cukes a guide to raising vegan kids a couple of weeks ago, I was at a little shop here in New York, a high vibe, a little raw food shop. And the woman behind the counter said, I've been saving this for you. When I was moving, I found this book. And it was Dr. Clapper's 1987 book on raising vegan children. <laughs> oh and along gosh. with the entire Phoenix family, when Joaquin, I think, was still named Leaf. Yeah. And there was my daughter and me. There's one picture. I'm nursing my daughter. It's like, oh, my gosh. History <laughs> follows us <laughs> around. And, you know, there has not been a whole lot since. So this is really important. So tell us about raising kids. Yeah, again, uh, well, we got to see Dr. Clapper. I got to see him like five or six times during the Animal Rights Conference. He was a, a, a speaker uh, at a number of sessions. 
Wonderful, wonderful man. Obviously, I introduced him actually as a film star now because he's been in Cowspiracy and What the Health. Um, yeah, I didn't know about that. And I'm going to have to look into that book and actually maybe ask him if he would like to contribute to this new book. So in The Skeptical Vegan, I talk about how uh, we were you know, trying to conceive and how I actually think going vegan helped um, conceive our second child while adopting our first child. And so during the book, I mean, within the book, you can hear about um, or read about the, the early struggles or decisions that we were make, making on raising children, little kids, infants. And in fact, one part of the book, we talk about how we approached our daycare because we were paying the same amount of a tuition as the omnivore parents, but we weren't getting any of the snacks because the snacks were dairy milk and graham crackers with with uh, dairy or butter in them or, you know, other ingredients that weren't vegan. And so we did, you know, write a letter to the corporate uh, headquarters and eventually got vegan options in all the classrooms. Ooh. And so it's those kinds of uh, challenges that I'm facing, my wife and I are facing in raising these two kids that we want to uh, let people know, again, they're surmountable. And in fact, we're raising kids who eat all of their veggies. Because that's all they eat. I mean, what an incredible thing when other parents are asking us, how do you get Cooper to eat broccoli? We're like, well, that's all that's on his plate. <laughs> like he, does, he can't shop yet. And so it's pretty much going to be what we give him. And so, you know, in addition to uh, Neil Bernard, I have Tom Campbell as a contributor, a bunch of vegan parents. I have I don't know if you got to see uh, Evan, the vegan, the little boy at the conference who's just so funny. He was PETA's like uh Littlest yeah, vegan winner. Vegan. <laughs> yes. So adorable. So he and his uh, mom are contributing to this book. So it's, again, not unlike can you go vegan as a 45-year-old man, meat-eating man, but also can you raise vegan children to be healthy? Uh, you know, that's going to be the, the byproduct of their diet, but also compassionate. I mean, when we hear our kids bragging about not eating animals there's nothing more heartwarming than that you know to just really know that that we're getting it uh we're instilling it in them early jasmine was just saying that too on the on the earlier interview today about kids have opportunities um that we can present to them that uh are going to help them in such incredible ways a little trick that that tom campbell told me years ago was always have a bowl of fruit out and if it's there and it's easily grabbable that's what you're going to grab and so you'll grab an apple on your way out of the house and and Cooper will grab an apple on the way out of the house. He's not, you know, looking for a bag of potato chips or a chocolate bar or whatever other, you know, snacks uh, non-vegan kids might eat. He's enjoying these, you know, enjoying the, the fruits and vegetables. So, yeah, I think it's going to be in fact, it's kind of the book I really wanted to write a book about parenting because I just love doing it um, and having it written from a man's, a man's perspective, not unlike the skeptical vegan. That was one thing that Tracy McWhorter kept saying when I was writing this book. Uh, she said, this is, you know, this is a different voice. This is a voice that's needed that, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, a man can go vegan and uh, maintain all of his masculinity and uh, really enjoy uh, the new lifestyle, which has just been incredible for me. Well, I can tell. I think it's, it's, it's joyous. It's, it's euphoric. Uh, another question on, on kids. Did, did you... Um, adopt your first child in infancy how did you deal with the nursing period uh we there's one soy formula that we put cooper on yeah we picked him up when he was five days old 
Uh, we did borrow some breast milk uh, from some uh, other parents, uh, another uh, mother, you know, recent mother. And uh, other, otherwise, we subsidized with a soy formula, an organic soy formula. Wonderful. And uh, so that's how he was... He was raised. He's the sturdiest little. I mean, I keep saying he could lift a Volkswagen over his head. He's so. Um, and then, of course, as Paisley was born, uh, she was she was raised on breast milk, and then uh-huh. never had formula. But in the house, we've constantly got a container of almond or soy or rice or any of the non dairy milks uh, that they just go through like crazy. Which again has as much calcium, as much vitamin D, as much and more so in some cases protein than the dairy counterpart. Oh, absolutely. There's just so much that's available. Now, one thing that I got from reading your book is that you live in one of the coolest towns in America. Either you are on the Chamber of Commerce or Ithaca, New York, is a place everybody needs to experience. What's it like to be vegan in that particular location? I agree. Well, uh, a good example is uh, laid out in the book when you talk about holidays, how difficult it is to celebrate holidays with your omnivore um, family. And so we soon discovered that my mom wasn't willing to take the turkey off the table. And if she was going to come visit us for Thanksgiving, she wanted to bring meat. And so we ended up having to create our own holiday. And so we soon had, you know, our annual tradition of inviting as many vegan friends as we had in the area. And that number has actually inflated up to toward 30 or more people. And so that gives you an idea. Ithaca is a very, very small town but we can easily pull together as many as 30 vegans for a holiday potluck. So there's that. There's a lot of vegans here, a lot of vegan support, plus all of the restaurants, Not you know, most of the restaurants have vegan options and make it very easy to dine out being vegan. So, yeah, we are very lucky. And, of course, the waterfalls and the wineries are here. Oh, it, it sounds great. I need to come and visit. Yes. So, <laughs> so you shifted a lot since you became vegan in terms of, of your work and you're working with farm animal rights movement. So tell us about how it's affected what you do in the day to day. Well, again, embracing the community. Uh, one of the first clients I had when I had my agency was Miyoko's Kitchen, uh, doing a lot of their packaging and website design and marketing and you can't ask for a better client than, you know, the number one, as I would consider it, gourmet cheese company in the country. And so working with Miyoko opened the door for a lot more clients, like I did the marketing for Plant Pure Nation, uh, the films. That's where I got to meet Nelson Campbell. I knew Tom and Colin Campbell already. Um, so it, it's really it, it allowed me to focus more on what I do really well in terms of marketing and design, but then use it toward good, you know, toward the betterment of, of your own health and the planet um, and the environment, you know, the environment. So I, it was really fortunate for me that I got to work uh, in doing what I love to do um, toward a vegan future. It's just, I mean, how many people wake up every day and know that they're, they're saving animals? Well, more than ever. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I know. Certainly, right? I mean, one of the great things, obviously, is that we can just be vegan and know that we're saving animals, but a lot of people are managing to turn it into some sort of entrepreneurial pursuit as yeah. well. Yeah, I know. So what's it like for you? I know you've done marketing for a long time and now you're an author. Now you have joined the, <laughs> oh my gosh. the circle. Do you love to write? Do you hate to write? What's that like? Uh, 
I love to write. I wish I had more time to do it oh, with the kids around. That. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy to find the time to slice out some really quality writing time. I think about people who go on sabbatical. Yeah. I think, oh my gosh, you have an entire year to write something? <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. So I love writing. I think to me, um, quite honestly, there's a little bit of narcissism in me that I love the notoriety. I love going to a, a book signing event and talking with people and meeting people and signing books. There's a real real joy for me about knowing that people, especially like you and others who have read my words and they have some meaning to them. And a, and a good point here is that I have a friend who says she is personally handing my book to Paul McCartney in September. She oh, has a friend. Fabulous. I, I can't even imagine. So on the inscription, I wrote, Paul, you have no idea what your words have meant to me. for years. So I hope my words have meaning as well. I love the idea that people actually relate to or recognize and acknowledge uh, what I've written. And so that to me is much, that's the most gratifying part of it is that, that I'm sort of, I'm known now as a writer, which before, uh, you know, really wasn't uh, in my wheelhouse as much. Yeah. Well, you have also helped make yourself known first by writing a fabulous (laughs) book, but you're, you're a very good marketer. So for people who are listening, who have vegan businesses, who are trying to become more known in the world, what, what's your advice to them? Uh, I would just stay, you know, like I was, as I was saying, stay focused. That to me was a big part of the success of my agency and then ultimately working for Farm is that I knew I was going to only work with vegan companies. And I had some, you know, Cornell professors, Nithika College professors tell me that was way too focused, that it's too niche, that's not going to work. But as you know, Victoria, we seek each other out. And we find each other and we want to work with each other and we want to put a post on on Facebook to say, I need a web developer and that web developer (laughs) needs to be vegan, right? It's really important to us. And so you discover, yeah, while we might be a small portion of the population, we all support each other. And so if you're really in it for the right reasons, uh, I think you'll be very successful in doing whatever you want to do if you stay focused. Yeah, I just love buying anything from a vegan company. You know, I mean, I know a lot of of the foods have now been purchased by bigger companies. And if the food is still good, I still buy it. But to buy something from a small company that, you know, the person behind it has the same value system that you do is really special. And it also seems like your money gets to stay in the family. (laughs) It's true. And actually, when I first when I first started actually communicating with fellow vegans, I found it so incredibly rewarding to be able to sign off an email that says, thank you for all you do for the animals without somebody saying, what are you kind of weirdo or what do you mean by that? It's that to me is what it comes down to is that Victoria, everything you do, this broadcast, your books, your, your main street vegan Academy, all of your incredible uh, ventures are helping save the animals and helping to promote veganism. And that's, we're so fortunate we can do that. We are indeed. So we're just about out of time, Eric. So if you could tell listeners just anything, vegans, non-vegans, what is the Eric Lindstrom thought or joke of the day? (laughs) Well, I want to start by saying animals are not food, basing off of what we just said. Um, And I do want to sort of reiterate that I, I think anyone can and should try and go vegan. I don't think it's, as you said, as difficult as it used to be. Uh, There's a lot of support out there. Um, I'm willing to offer as much support as I can. I hope people find support in the book. 
but it definitely to me is I want to feel like uh, my contribution to society now has been uh, turning millions of people vegan, hundreds of people, thousands. I don't know. A lot of people vegan. So I, I want I want to be I want to be known for that. I like all those big numbers. We'll do hundreds, exactly. thousands, and millions. There you go. Yep. It'll Start work. there. Start small. Eric, thank you so, so very much. The book is The Skeptical Vegan. You must read it. If you thank read you. it in public, you may get some stares because you will laugh and you will learn. So thank you so much. Also, um, remember uh, Jasmine Leva and the Invisible Vegan and her Indiegogo campaign. We'll put all that information on the show notes. To everybody for listening, thank you. Lots and lots. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find Have you heard the quote, dream lofty dreams, and as you dream, so shall you become? Your vision is the promise of what you shall one day be. Do you have a dream that you put on the shelf because it seemed too good to be true for you or out of reach? I hope you'll consider resurrecting that dream because you'll never really be happy until you at least try. The great visionary Walt Disney once said, All of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. At Unity, we believe that you have the power within you to realize your dreams by applying the proven spiritual principles we share. You will learn how to become the joyous, dynamic, fulfilled person you're meant to be. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. The benefits of spiritually conscious living start now. For a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential, tune in to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way. 
with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. At Metaphysical Wrong 2, we demystify metaphysics to help you live life at a deeper level. One of our key principles is the recognition that you always have the power to choose how you respond to any situation. Instead of asking, why did this happen to me? A better practice, which aligns with the metaphysical principles we share, is to ask yourself the question, how can I use this for good? We promise you'll experience a transformation in thinking that will reap huge dividends as you master the art of living metaphysically. For new perspective and spiritual insight, listen to Metaphysical Romp 2 with co-hosts Rev. Paul Hasselbeck, Rev. Bill Holton, and Rev. Cher Holton. Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time, here on Unity Online Radio. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 